Obviously, the gospel has spread to the ends of the earth. That's why Center Church exists today and all the churches around the world. But to the audience that's right there in that space, specifically the disciples, that had to sound like the most unlikely task in the world, right? Like they were just a few guys who were in a room like, you're going to do what? You're going to send us to the ends of the earth? Like, we don't even know where that's at, right? And they had to think to themselves, I, we just, can we just start with, you know, maybe having a church service here, Jesus, right? Like, you, you think about what's going through their head. In fact, I, I tried to think about how ridiculous it might sound to a different person in a different situation, right? So let's say you own a business, and someone came along to you and said, hey, you're going to grow your business by 5,000% this year. If you own a business or you've owned a business, that's actually really stressful. You're like, yeah, 5,000%, I'll take that growth. But all of the logistics that it would take to grow 5,000%, right, Paul? That's why you're retiring, because you don't want 5,000% this year. Or let's say you're in school. Imagine if someone came along and said, hey, you're going to finish your K-12 education in one year. How's that sound, Will? You ready for that? Yeah, not even Will, who's a sharp, handsome young man. He's not up for doing all of those grades in one year. That's ridiculous. What if you were tasked with having 10 newborn babies in your care at one time? Okay, there we go. Now we're connecting to some moms here and some dads, all right? The fact of the matter is they all sound ridiculous, and to this audience, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, like they were in Jerusalem. They did not want to hear about these other places. They were just trying to survive Jerusalem. But as we know, and as we observed through the story of Acts, God does whatever he wants. That's what he does. He does whatever he wants. And he's chosen to do it through his followers, through Jesus' followers, through Christians. And he's equipped us with everything we need to accomplish everything he set us out to do. Now, I've read this verse four weeks in a row. Okay, it's going to be five because I want you to believe it. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says this, And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. I'm going to read it again. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Does that sound like the God who's leaving someone lacking? No, not at all. All things, in all situations, all that you need. So let's take a moment and consider the barriers that God needed to overcome in order to fulfill this promise that Jesus makes in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We will see through these accounts that these barriers that they had to overcome were both big and totally overcome by God's provision. So we're going to read through a couple sections of Acts, and then we're actually going to jump to Matthew. But if you have your Acts journal, or if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, the first barrier that God had to overcome in this great mission of sending disciples to be witnesses to the ends of the earth was to overcome the language barrier. Anybody else relate to this? You've ever had a problem communicating, even with your spouse, and you even speak the same language, okay? So, most likely, I should say. <laughs> Acts 2, 1 through 8, 
the account of God overcoming this. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? So there's this huge gathering, people who speak many different languages, and all of a sudden, just one chapter later from the promise in Acts 1-8, we see that God is delivering the capacity through the Holy Spirit for people to speak in languages that are not their own, that they actually can hear the gospel being presented in their own native language, and they're bewildered. So language barrier, not a problem for God. Okay, how about this barrier? The disciples needed credibility. When you think about the ragtag group of people that they were, they did not carry authority in their society. But God, again, able to do whatever he wants, gives them incredible credibility. Acts chapter 3, verse 1 through 10 says this. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. So he's begging, okay? Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now we must consider for a moment that this man who was lame from birth, we're not sure how old he is, but we know that he's a man. So it's been a significant amount of time that God knew that this man needed to be healed in this moment in order to further the credibility, the work that John and Peter were trying to accomplish, to be witnesses to the end of the earth. Now, the point of this story was that God was working in the disciples, but I think the man, and the reason why Luke at least in part captured this part of the story was because he wanted to convey that 
to whoever was hearing this story, whatever you're going through, no matter how long it's been, no matter how bad it is, don't give up. Don't give up. Because you just don't know when God intends to restore you, to reconcile it, to heal you, to provide the thing that you need. This man had every reason to give up. And he just was there, and God used him, and he was healed. And it brought credibility to this group of men. People had to take notice. It said that they were filled with wonder and amazement. Okay, so they needed to overcome the language barrier. They needed credibility. They also needed unity. Now, this might not sound like much of a barrier, um, but trying to get a group of people on the same page moving in the same direction is really, truly a miracle. Right, mom and dad? I mean, if you have more than one kid, like, you get it. If you've ever managed people, you get it. If you ever have participated in any church, you get it, okay? So it really is a miracle. But again, we see in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and 33, that God does this in incredible ways. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. They had unity, like a type of unity that is pretty unbelievable, if I'm honest, right? Like we all seem to love each other here at Center Church, but we're all going a different direction this week right? But it says that they had one heart, one soul. That's the type of unity that they needed, and God provided it. Okay, the last barrier that we're going to talk about from Acts is that they had to get to the ends of the earth, right? The end of the earth. So it wasn't just Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria. A couple of those are unreasonable for their own reasons. We don't have time to get into them, but the end of the earth, They needed to get to the end of the earth. Now, sometimes when we read the Bible, it's hard for us to understand the level of the miraculous that God is doing because of our modern comforts, okay? The ends of the earth, just not that big of a deal for us today. Like for for those of us who travel, you can get to whatever spot on earth within a day thanks to modern technology. But what if you had to walk, right? Or maybe at best, if you're rich, take a horse or a donkey. How good does the end of the earth sound now? Not very good at all. Imagine trying to get, to some, get, to, get someone to walk to the end of the earth. If you have kids, again, you know that three miles is the end of the world, okay? That's it. That's as far as they're going to go. So imagine ends of the earth, and yet God provided this incredible mode of transportation. Now, there's lots of this, but I picked the one that seems to be the most amazing at Acts 8, 35 through 40. You'll probably recognize this if you're familiar with Acts. It says, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, Here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? 
And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he was baptized. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing, but Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, I mean, carried him away, okay? Like, I don't know what that conjures up in your imagination, but whatever it is, it's ridiculous. But it happened, okay? But God provided. He needed to go to exactly where God intended for Philip to go, and he simply carried him away. These are just some of the examples of how the book of Acts testifies to how God did and does anything he wants through whoever he wants to in order to carry out the task of carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth so that we, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we being Christians, we being Christ followers, empowered by the Holy Spirit, will be witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Okay, but this promise is not only about being witnesses to the life of Jesus. The promise of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave in Acts 1-8 is actually attached to a command that Jesus gave earlier when he commissioned the disciples to go and make more disciples in Matthew chapter 28. Maybe one of the most quoted scriptures in all of the Bible if you've been to Center Church, but the Great Commission gives us the task that Jesus was giving to his disciples to go and make more disciples the same commissioning that he's given to each one of us who call Jesus Lord. It says this, Matthew 28, 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted, which I think is ridiculous at this point. But I'm just saying, Jesus died, was resurrected, is now with them again. I mean, if you come back from the dead, you should, if I do it, you should believe everything I say. I'm just saying, it's not gonna happen, but you should believe everything I say, okay? But still, some doubt it. So for those of us who doubt, whoo, we can feel better. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So when Jesus gave this command to his disciples, to the apostles, he had confidence in their ability to carry out the task because for two specific reasons. First of all, he knew that the Holy Spirit would empower them. That's exactly what we see in Acts 1 and in so many of the examples that I read to you was where humans fall short of their capacity to do that, the Holy Spirit empowers. The Holy Spirit fills the gap. But he was also confident that he had spent a significant amount of time discipling them himself. He wasn't just confident because he gave them a command. He was confident because he was giving them a command that he had been leading them to for two years in a very, very intimate and personal way. Now, Jesus definitely had 
many people who converted to Christianity throughout his ministry. We see that if you read the Gospels, tons of people being ministered to on like a one-off occasion. They believe they go about their way, right? But the 11 men standing with him in this moment, because there was 12, one was a traitor, now we have 11, standing him in this, with him in this moment were not just converted, they were discipled. There's a difference there. Now, Jesus actually doesn't, this is interesting because this is something that we as churchgoers in modern America might actually be confused about. Jesus didn't command us to go and make converts, right? The verbiage is disciples. Now, I'm thankful for conversion. That is incredibly important, but discipleship, that's a much more involved process. That's actually how people grow into healthy, functionally mature followers of Jesus. And we're all on that journey. That's what's beautiful about it. We're all on that journey somewhere. In fact, one of the few critiques that I have of the modern American church is that we get pulled into thinking that we can rush this process, that we can somehow mass produce disciples with great systems. But what we see is that Jesus modeled something completely different. The Son of God modeled something completely different. I love, this is my new favorite definition for discipleship, okay? I'm going to share this with you. It's from another pastor. Discipleship is deep work, right? We can get on board with that. It is deep work in community. You're not meant to do this on your own. Over a long period of time. Deep work in community over a long period of time. We can't hurry this. Jesus spent almost every day over the course of two years with 12 men that he was discipling. He ministered to a lot more. But these 12, they were his homies. They were in. They were in the same room when they were sleeping, snoring, eating, doing all the things that guys do, okay? Jesus was with them for two years, and so he discipled them. They weren't just converts. They were disciples. And so I want to point out a few ways how Jesus modeled discipleship, how he discipled these men. The first one is this. He generously empowered them. So we're going to look at these because I think we all have people in our life that we're discipling. Sometimes it's just, it's just hard to figure out, like, what do I do? Well, I'm not saying that I have the answer for every single person, but I do think I have a pretty good idea of how you might move forward. Just one step. So first of all, let's look at Jesus' life. He generously empowered them. In Matthew 10, verse 1, it says, And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, if Jesus was about Jesus, he would not have done that. He would have been like, no, I'm the guy I'm the son of God. I will do the powerful things. You guys hang out, make sure my clothes are clean and my food's ready, right? Right? That's like, like a manager, right? He had, no. But he generously empowered them. And so he gave them authority to do the things that he was doing, to do the things that 
that, that they could go out and do to have the same type of experience. So he generously empowered them. He also modeled how to share the gospel. This is important because I think it can be tough for us to share the gospel. In Matthew 4, verse 23, it says this, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So he took them with him, and wherever he went, he proclaimed the gospel. He modeled it. He didn't just say, hey, go share the gospel. He said, hey, come watch me do it so that you know how to do it yourselves. Third thing he did, he listened to them, and he answered their questions. Matthew 13, 10 through 17, it'll be on the screen, says this. Then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to you, the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has... But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled and says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and I did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Jesus, I'm sure, had to deal with some of the most ridiculous questions on earth, right? I mean, you've either been around a child who's done that to you, or a coworker, maybe your spouse, don't. Don't look at them, okay? This question comes up, and you're like, I saw that. This question comes up, and you're like, seriously? We're going to talk about this again? Now, this one wasn't bad, right? Because they're like, why do you teach the way that you teach? But there's some instances in, in the Gospels where Jesus had to be thinking, I quit. I'm over it. I'm done, right? If I was him, would have quit for sure. And yet, he took the time to listen and answer their questions. And thankfully, he's the son of God. He had to know some stuff so that he could answer their questions. But you're not that. But guess what? You can still answer their questions. You can still listen to their questions. Even if your answer is, I got no idea, let's find out together. To the people that you are discipling, listen to them, answer their questions. The final thing he did that we're going to pay attention to is that he took time to eat and relax and rest with them. A couple different instances in Matthew where he does this. Matthew 9, 10 through 13 says this, and Jesus reclined at the table, right? What a great image because the Son of God, you just think holy, you know, there's a lot of imagery in the Bible, but Jesus reclining at the table, that's just not one I often think about. He reclined at the table in the house 
Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Do you realize that that picture alone, Jesus hanging out with some of the most hated people in all of society, and not only is he with them, he's reclining with them. He's hanging out, right? That is wild. If we don't pay attention to these things, we don't realize how wild that is, and yet Jesus was doing it. Verse 11 says, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And again, in Matthew eleven twenty-five through 29 says this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All these things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wasn't work, 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 work. He relaxed. He reclined. He says, come to me and I will give you rest These are good things. Okay, so my point in highlighting all of these passages from Matthew, all of these moments in Jesus' journey, was that he used three key things to make this unlikely group of men into the disciples who would eventually be his witnesses to where? The ends of the earth, right? These are the three things. The first one was time. The process was long. It felt, I'm sure, at times frustrating. It probably felt frustrating on both sides. But Jesus knew that in order for them to become the men that he intended for them to become, that he needed to give it time. This could not be rushed. The second one is presence. He could not disciple them from far away. But he was, a, well, he probably could, but he chose not to. And I know that I couldn't do that. I couldn't parent. I couldn't husband very well from far away, let alone make a disciple. But he was around them. His presence was with them all of the time. So he gave them time. He gave them presence. And he gave them scripture. This is huge. So at this point, it was basically only the Hebrew text that was available And Jesus used this to connect to his audience. So he used scripture. He he used the texts that would have been known by most of his audience to connect to them. But he also brought new teaching, which are recorded in the Gospels and then later expounded upon in the New Testament for his disciples to use as their foundation for discipleship. You cannot disciple somebody without Scripture. It's just not possible. So he gave them time, presence, and Scripture. Now, 
The call on your life as a follower of Jesus is to go and make disciples. That great commission still stands. And you're going to need these same three things. You're going to need the same three things. You're going to need to commit time to these people. You're going to need to allow for it to happen at a pace with which it's supposed to happen. You're going to need to be present in these people's life. And you're going to need to put them in front of Scripture, to be transformed by it through the power of the Holy Spirit. This process, it's actually pretty simple, but the commitment level is actually pretty high. The book of Acts, it captures what this type of commitment to a small group of men and eventually women, the type of impact it had when they were faithful to go and make disciples. And guess what? The world was changed forever. It started with just a few people and the commitment to time, presence, and scripture, and the world was changed. It was small, and yet it grew large over time. The most significant thing that I can do in this world is to disciple those closest to me my family, my friends, my church. So if you gained anything from this series in Acts, I hope it's this idea that as a Christian, you've been commissioned to make disciples. And this entire series has highlighted how no matter what the barrier is, God is going to do whatever he wants. And he's going to overcome whatever barrier exists in your way. That's why I keep reading 2 Corinthians 9.8. It's another reminder that you have nothing standing in front of you that God is not capable of overcoming. When you're not sure who you're supposed to disciple, look around you each day this week. Those are the people, okay? Those are the people, whether it be in your household or your work or wherever you play on a regular basis, look around. Those are the people. When you're not sure how to do it, I encourage you to pray. I encourage you to pray. And when you don't believe it's possible, just like I'm sure that most of these men did not believe that they would be witnesses to the ends of the earth, you just keep showing up in their life. You got to be patient. You got to be present and you got to use scripture. That's what we take from the book of Acts. This thing is not going to happen fast, but it's going to be significant, and it's been significant, and that's why we're here today, and that's why we're wrapping up the series with the reminder that we are commissioned to go and do that. Now, truthfully, I'm not even sad we're ending the book of Acts, and it's probably not because of what you think. It's not because it's been a long series or anything like that. The truth of the matter is... um, For one, what it's done in my own heart has reminded me of these very things that I shared with you today, that the commitment to disciple people is not about systems or being a dynamic preacher, which, okay, no, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that to you guys. It's not about any of that. It's about these simple things that we see modeled in Jesus's life and promised to us in the early part of Acts. So 
one of the reasons I'm not sad is because it's done such a good work in my life, and I hope it's done the same for you. But I actually think the, the reason why I'm most excited is because it's actually the perfect lead into our next series. Now, normally, I don't promo a new series at the end of another one, but it's so well connected because what we're going to move into starting next week is we're going to move into a study of what's regarded as the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's so connected to what we've been talking about in Acts because what Jesus is going to talk about in the Sermon on the Mount is how to live a life where you can flourish now, right? Heaven and earth are eventually going to collide. But for now, we live in this broken place where things go wrong all of the time, but it's not the call of the believer to simply wait to get to heaven or to get to the end of your life. The transformation that God has done in our lives is, is so important for us now that we can flourish. And I want to read this passage to you because you're going to hear it a lot in the coming months here at Center Church. It's Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 7, 24 through, through 27. It says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. We want to be a people who build our house on the rock, on the foundation of Jesus. And so that's why we're going to come to this series and we're going to look at it with very, very, very like fine detail. We're going to spend a good amount of time this fall in the Sermon on the Mount because I believe it is packed full of ways that you can flourish as a Christ follower. So that's why I'm not sad. Jess, if you guys want to come up, we're going to sing a song to close it out in just a second. But I want to encourage you with this. This week, as you go about your week, I want you to think about the people in your life that you have been commissioned to go and disciple. And then I want you to reflect on the book of Acts. You can reflect on Paul's journey or any one of these disciples and remember how unlikely it was that not only were they discipling other people, Paul being a murderer for one, right? Peter who denied Jesus, the threat of being killed for proclaiming the gospel. I mean, there's reason after reason after reason. So whatever stands in your way, whatever barrier is in your way to reflect on the good news that we talked about in this act series, that there is no barrier too big, but that God is indeed providing you with everything you need to do every good work. And reflect on that and give God glory for that. And then come ready next week to start talking about the ways that Jesus taught us to live on the foundation of Jesus, right? Because it's hard to be a good disciple if your life isn't also built on the rock of Jesus. And so that's why I encourage you to be here starting next week. God, we thank you for this 
beautiful series, the book of Acts that you've put in front of us, the historical account of how the church grew and how your promise to send the Spirit and empower us to make disciples, God, that that was lived out by so many people. It's the reason why Center Church exists today, because a group of men and women had the courage to take serious the call to go and make disciples, and a couple of thousand years later, here we are. God, we may not see our impact the way that we hope to. God, we know that this is our era, this is our time to be those disciple makers. So I pray that we would do that and take that seriously. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with us while we sing this song?